Let's all stand together at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at a message I call Enduring Faith. Enduring Faith out of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while... And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. You have need of endurance. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. When you read the book of Hebrews, you are reading a long discussion. It could almost be called an argument. He's arguing against something that was going on. And chapter 10 brings us then to the conclusion. And uh, I don't encourage you to do it, of course, right now. But maybe if you went home this afternoon and uh, maybe before you took a nap, just take a few minutes. You could do it in 30 minutes or less and just read those chapters and try to read them in one sitting. And you'll see the progression And you'll see how chapter 10 then is the conclusion. Uh, Once he got to chapter 10 and finished up, there was nothing left to do but give the invitation. And we'll do that again here in a little bit. Um, He writes to Jewish believers in Christ. They were struggling to keep going in their Christian lives, specifically as it related to the New Testament church. He just issued a strong imperative In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Most casual reading of that passage will show us the importance of, of being a part, a regular part, of a church gathering together, not forsaking then the gathering, the assembling of ourselves together. And what do we do when we come together? Uh, Well, we consider one another. We encourage one another. We stir up love and good works. We don't quit going. And in fact, he tells us that we need church more, not less, as we get closer and closer to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is absolutely true and trustworthy. And this absolutely true and trustworthy revelation of God could not possibly be any clearer about the condition of the world and what will be going on in the world as we approach the coming of Christ. Evil men, the Bible says, and seducers will wax worse and worse. We don't need church less these days. We need it more. And so there's certainly an emphasis on our gathering together so we can stir up love and grow in our love of one for another and encourage good works. But there's more going on here. You see, the Hebrew Christians had a tough experience with believing in Jesus. Immediately after they converted to Christ and followed the Lord in baptism as we saw today. Immediately. Many of these people faced intense persecution. 
In that sense, it is not unlike what happens in many countries today that are dominated by Islam. So that if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, that's one thing. But when you're baptized, when you make that public profession of your faith, you're at best going to lose your livelihood, your job. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your property. And that's the best because it's against the law for a Muslim to convert to Christianity. At worst, in some of the more uh, dominant countries, the penalty is death. And most likely, it will be administered in a very gruesome fashion. Other acts of violence that occur that's too awesome to, or too awful and heinous to even speak of in this environment. The Jews who professed, professed faith in Christ, they believed. They made their belief public through baptism. They immediately faced a backlash of persecution. Paul says this in verse 32. But you recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. We're learning more and more in America about being made a spectacle because of our faith in Christ, of suffering reproach, because we are believers. You know, there's something in us that loathes being different and that longs just to blend in and belong. You young people going back to school this week, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You long to have a group that you fit in with, someplace where you belong. You long to be able just to blend in. But it's not just young people. Parents know this too. You know that at work, where you go to work. You know that in your environment where you live, your neighborhood where you live. Uh, but there's something great in this passage. You see, not only did they experience it that, that themselves, but they then became companions of others who were treated the same way. You see, it takes a strong stand with Jesus Christ, not only to endure that kind of thing by yourself, but to see somebody else who's being reproached, somebody else who's being ostracized, somebody else who's being pushed out, somebody else who's been made fun of. It takes a lot of faith to go and join yourself to that person. We're going to be in that crowd. See, there's always been what for... My quaint and old-fashioned way of saying it today, there's always been a cool crowd and a not-so-cool crowd. There always has been. It's nothing new. I remember, Nancy and I were talking about it last night, when they, and we were talking about it because I brought it up to her. We remember when they put in the first Sonic in Magnolia, Arkansas. Uh, Nancy and I began to date shortly after that, and going to Sonic was a part of a, 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 a ritual that went on in America back then. You'd get in your car or truck or whatever you had. It didn't much matter what it had, but the better car that it was, you could. And you'd just drive up and down the street, wave at your friends and honk at people. You say, what was the purpose of it? There was no purpose to it. It was something to do. Sonic was a big part of that because if you were lucky enough then to get a spot in Sonic where you could actually pull in and park and I mean, that was a good deal because then everybody was going to be riding through there and you get to wave at everybody. 
I quickly learned, because my wife told me, that there was a side you could park on on Sonic that was the cool side, and then there was a side you could park on that was the dork side. <laughs> to me, I was just excited. I mean, I was from Taylor, a little old town, and this is the big city, Magnolia. I mean, my goodness, I was just proud to be in Magnolia, to have a date, and to get to park in Sonic. I mean, I'd, no, no, we had to park on the cool side. Which, by the way, was the one you had to drive all the way around the back. Wherever Sonic's located, it would be on the left side if you're looking at it. She still remembered. I had to ask. (laughs) Well, sometimes being a part of the cool crowd is just as simple as parking on the right side of Sonic. Or in this case, the left side, I guess. I can tell you from experience, though, I parked on the left side of Sonic, which was the right side, the cool side, and I still wasn't in the cool crowd. I just, it didn't work for me. There's always been a cool crowd and a not-so-cool crowd. All of us, there's something in all of us. We want to be a part of that crowd that's accepted and liked and popular and cool. We don't like to be ostracized. We don't like to be shunned. We don't like to be made fun of, to suffer reproach. But let's not uh, overlook what's going on in Hebrews chapter 10. These people endured that, that from the minute that they were saved. They were shunned. They were ridiculed. They were mocked. Not only that, they, had their jo- they forfeited their jobs. They lost their property. Some of them became homeless and all the stigma that went along with that then and now. They were singled out because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They kept then on associating with other believers. They kept on going to church even when their difficulties went another level. And it always seems to go to another level. It became violent and even deadly. It moved to tribulation. Then they took that joyfully. What the Bible says. You remember. Remember what it was like after you got saved. Remember how you suffered all these things. And you suffered it joyfully. And you made yourself companions. Of those who were suffering the same way. But that was then. And now those same Christians. Are on the verge of giving up. The years have taken their toll. It's become more and more difficult. And dangerous and costly. Especially to exercise your faith in public. You understand what you believe in private, in your own heart, in your own home. That's one thing. But what you do in public suddenly, suddenly going to church had become difficult and dangerous and costly. It's against that backdrop then that we have this statement today. You need endurance specifically. You need the kind of faith. That endures. I submit to you this morning that we need that kind of faith too. The kind of faith that endures. Now before we go on in our consideration of that faith that endures, we need to get it into our mind what we're talking about because the Bible talks about faith in several different ways. There is a first kind of faith or initial level of faith you might say. 
And it is well illustrated by the time when the Apostle Paul met with King Herod Agrippa. And Paul did before Herod Agrippa the king. The king. Did I tell you he's the king? Paul before King Herod Agrippa. What did he do? He began to share Jesus Christ with them. And as he gets down then to that pivotal moment, he asked him a question. He said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Silence. But Paul answered for him, I know you believe. He knew it. You see, Paul was dealing with someone who believed. He believed in God. He believed the prophets. He might not know very much about either one of them, but he believed that there was a God, and he believed that God had sent spokesmen to his people. He believed in God. He believed in the prophets. But let me tell you something. King Herod Agrippa was not saved. He was not going to heaven. And in fact, he's most famous for saying, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost, but lost. And as far as we know, King Herod Agrippa was never saved. But that is that initial level of faith. And there's a lot of people who are there and many who have not got there. Many who are not there. There are many who believe that there is a God. They know a little bit about the Bible. They know that the Bible is God's revelation to us. They know about Jesus. They celebrate Christmas. They have that initial kind of faith. Agrippa was at that point, but he needed to go to another level of faith. Paul, again, illustrates that for us in Romans chapter 2 and 10 and verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So here are people then who have believed in God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so that initial level of faith is that believing that there is a God, believing that he has revealed himself to his, through his word, believing that in Jesus Christ in some sense. But then there is that person who believes in their heart. The Bible says, this is your spiritual heart, not that blood-pumping muscle in your chest. This is the heart that is the heart of your spirit. And it is with that heart that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because we hear the gospel, that gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We hear the gospel, that gospel then is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God so that we're convicted of our sins. And at that moment, we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel, the Lord, and we confess him, Jesus Christ is Lord, as our Savior we ask him to forgive us our sin. We believe on Jesus Christ. You see, that's another level of faith. We call that, for our purposes today, saving faith. You see, there's a kind of belief that people have. They believe in God. They maybe believe in the Bible, maybe believe something about Jesus, but they're not saved. But then it goes to another level. When you hear the gospel, when you understand the truth of the gospel, and you call out to Jesus Christ in faith, believing that he'll save you. And then you have this promise, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. This is a vital and crucial kind or level of faith. Both of them are. Nobody will ever be saved while denying that God exists. No one will ever be saved then until they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart. Then there's another level of faith that the Bible speaks of. And this is what's under discussion in the book of Hebrews for the most part. It is the kind of faith that comes running to God. Because you see, when we're saved, we're not through with God and God ain't through with us. Amen. I mean, God's still working on us and we still need him. And so he says in Hebrews in chapter 4, he brings up how that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So if you look at yourself, that man or woman in the mirror this morning and say, man, I'm a mess. I, I want you to know Jesus Christ knows your mess. He was tempted in all points, just like you are. There's not a temptation that we'll ever face in life that Jesus didn't face. We might enhance it. We might make it more uh, technologically spectacular. But the same sins are still coming to us that were going on then. And Jesus faced them all. And he overcame them all. So he knows what we're going through. We don't have a high priest, that's Jesus, that is insensitive to the life that we're living or the struggles we have. He knows it. And that's something to say, thank you, God, for. Thank you, Jesus. Let us, therefore, because of this, come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's that initial kind of faith in that believes in God and believes that God exists. There's that saving faith that comes when we hear the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit and we call out to Jesus to save us, and he does. But then there's this kind of faith that turns to God in a time of crisis. It goes to him, to his throne of grace to obtain mercy. Oh, how we need mercy. I look forward to the day and I'll be standing on golden streets when I do. I look forward to the day when I don't have to begin a prayer by saying, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. That day will come, but it's not now. We come to God then because we've messed up and we are messy. And we need then God's mercy and we need his grace. Mercy to forgive us. Grace to help us. We come to God. This kind of faith, you see, is built upon the others. It, we don't do this until we're saved. Uh, we, we don't do this without believing that God exists. So we, we've come to a different level of faith where we are calling out to God for help. We continue then to come to Him. When you do that, you will find that God does not always move at the speed or in the nature that you would like Him to move. There's something about fallen humanity that we don't tend to run to God unless it's an emergency. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Uh, when the doctor tells you, well, all you can do now is pray. And you're, you know, you're going to say, oh, has it come to that? Is it that bad? 
could give you example after example in Scripture this morning. I hope you can pull those up and I don't have to belabor the point. When we come to God needing mercy and grace, uh, everything is not always fixed. Help doesn't always come the way we want it to. The change that we are longing for doesn't always happen. And in fact, sometimes things get worse. So will we quit when we have that faith that comes to God? I mean, that's, that's what's going on in our text this morning. The Hebrew believers were saved. They came to God. They believed. They professed their faith in Jesus Christ. They suffered because of it. They endured for a while. But now, things have really gotten tough. Don't you think they'd been crying out to God? Of course they had. Had God fixed their problem not the way they wanted? And a lot of them are thinking about quitting. Sometimes we think about quit. I may be talking to somebody at home. Maybe talking to somebody in this audience this morning. You're, you're, you're thinking about it. Will we go back to the life we used to have? Will we give up on God? Will we give up on our faith? Will we turn to sinful rebellion? Will we go back to how we used to live? Or will we have a faith that endures? Even when we come boldly to the throne of grace and cry out for mercy and our life doesn't change. Will we endure? Well, how do we get that kind of enduring faith? I've told you before that I surrendered to preach when I was 14 years old. I grew up in a church where I was the youth department uh, after my sister graduated. Before that, it was me and her. I went to a school where I didn't know a lot of Christian kids. I didn't have a youth group to be a part of. I was going it alone. And after a year and a half of that, I got so discouraged. And I decided I'd quit. It's tough being... Not even 16 years old and feeling like you're all washed up and has been. Failure. That's how I felt. Hadn't led anybody to Christ. None of my friends had become believers. I went to school and was going it alone. I decided to try that party life for a little while. I did. You say, how can you do that when you can't drive? You didn't grow up in Taylor, Arkansas different world back then oh but I remember that time where God hemmed me in has God ever hemmed you in anybody he hemmed me in I didn't have nowhere to turn but to him and I did and you know what God forgave me and he gave me another chance and he opened up doors then that have never shut for ministry See, I, I, I've been there, folks. I, I, I've been to that point where you just felt like your faith wasn't working. It, it's just not doing it. I've, I've done this. I don't know if I can endure. I've been there. Been there. These believers in Hebrews chapter 10 were there too. How do we then get that enduring faith when we feel like quitting, giving up? There's three words that stand out in our text today. The first one is confidence. 
We'll go through these quickly. Hebrews 10, 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. This is a confidence that is built on what God has done for you in the past. That's why he said in verse 32, You remember, you recall, you bring these things back. This is a key thing then to remember. And the thing that he called on them to remember was the joy they had in the past. The joyful experiences that they had had when God had helped them. When they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they have a better and enduring possession for themselves in heaven. This was a time, you see, when their faith was strong and vibrant and working because they didn't just endure a time of trial, they endured it with joy. And we found that all over the New Testament. We remember the time when the apostles were beaten and threatened and they went away what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. See, everybody has trials. All Christians have difficulties and times of suffering, but some keep their joy and some lose their joy. It's all a matter of attitude and perspective. I'm not going to tell you this morning that grief and sorrow may not have their time. Uh, they do. The psalmist said in Psalm 30 and 4, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Sorrow has a time. Tears have a time. But joy comes in the morning. Joy comes when we remember how God has saved us from our sins. God has delivered us from the penalty of an eternal hell. God has changed my life. He has changed my family's life. We begin to think about all of the good and glorious things that God has done. And we know that yes, I may be in a mess right now, but joy is coming in the morning. confidence, a confidence born then out of what God has done for us in the past. That's a key ingredient to having an enduring faith. Every now and then we need to have what I like to call a come to Jesus meeting. And that's not an argument with somebody else. That's a time where we sit down with the Lord Jesus and start thanking him for all he's done. You'll spend a long time counting your blessings. Confidence. That's a key ingredient to endurance. Second word is obedience. Verse 36. For you have need of obedience, of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God. There it is. You say, I don't see obedience there. There it is. After you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Most of the time, you see, we're pretty resourceful people. And if we can examine a situation and see something that needs to be done, we can do it. There is something to do. We don't get all bent out of shape about that. Yeah, I need to fix this. This is how I fix it. We see it. We need to do it. And we do it. But then there are times when we look at situations and we look at it from every angle. We look at it from above and from beneath. We walk all around it. We look at it from this side, this side, this side, front and back, upside down, whatever. We look at it any way we want to look at it. And we don't see one thing that we can do to change that situation. Prophet Ezekiel was given a great lesson of that in famous chapter, Ezekiel chapter 37. It's Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Ezekiel was in Babylon, but God took him back to Israel and he set him down in the middle of a valley that was filled with dry human bones, unburied. Probably some great battle. Might have been that last battle that happened in Israel when there was nobody left even to bury the dead. 
And there's that valley full of bones of the slain soldiers. He sets him right down in the middle of that very macabre scene. After a while, he tells him to get up and walk around it. So he gets to look at it up close and personal in that big valley full of bones. He's looking at it all. You know what he sees? Bones. What do you see up close? Bones. What does he see far away? Bones. What do you see on the right side? Bones. What do you see on the left side? Bones. He looked at it from up above. What's, it, what's the high view give you? Bones. If he'd had a drone, he could have run a drone after it. What would he have seen? Drone. Bones. That's it. Drone and bones. That's it. And God tells him or asks him a question. Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he gave a very astute answer. He said, Lord, thou knowest. God, you know. And then God said to him, preach to these bones. If you read Ezekiel 37, the word there is prophecy. That's the Old Testament word for preaching. Preach to these bones. And as he began to preach to those bones, a remarkable thing happened. Those bones started shaking and moving. And all of a sudden, they started joining themselves back together. Scattered though they were, they began to join together. And then they began to grow sinew on the bones. And then muscle on the bones. And then flesh, skin on the bones. And they stood up then. But the Bible says, as yet there was no life in them. Great, now we've got a zombie army. Read it. Ezekiel 37. They were standing there, but they were dead. No life in them. So God said to Ezekiel, what do you do now? Ezekiel, well, Ezekiel preached to the wind. You preached to the bones. Now preach to the wind. And he did. And the wind came and brought the breath of God then into those corpses. And they became alive. And became then a great and mighty army. Ezekiel was looking out at a valley full of dry bones, but there was an army there that would respond to the power of, of God and the power of the Word of God. You couldn't see them, but God could see them. Sometimes in the situations in our life, God will ask us to do things that don't make any sense. And we see a lot of that in the New Testament. He tells us to agree with our adversaries, to forgive those who've harmed us and wronged us, to be good to our enemies, to do good to them because it heaps coals of fire upon their heads. We're dealing with the situation then. We don't see any way to fix it. We're believing for God then to do what we can't do. But what if God doesn't do what we want or move as quickly as we want? What then? These Hebrew believers were tired their faith was struggling. They just wanted to quit and go back to their old life and just blend in and ride off into the sunset. And earlier on in this chapter, it's not surprising, then he gave them several instructions. Let us draw near to God with full assurance. That's something sometimes we have to do. Let us hold fast the profession of faith, but then let us consider one another to provoke them to good works and not forsake the assembly. Uh, never forget, folks, that your faith matters very much not only to you, but to somebody else. Consider others, he said. Consider others. And he was telling them, consider what kind of impact it's going to have on your kids if you give up. Consider what kind of impact, kids, that it might have on your friends at school. Because somebody is looking to you. Though they might make fun of you. Though they may laugh at you. Though they may mock you. At the bottom line is, folks, they are looking at you. As an example of what it means to be a Christian. What about them? If you give up, 
If you quit, if you go back, what does it do to somebody else? So when we are waiting to do what only God can do, when we're waiting for God to do, rather, what only God can do, we need to keep doing what we can do and what He has told us to do. There's no time to quit. There's no time to quit. We need to keep doing what God has told us to do. That's obedience. After we have done the will of God, He said, some of the greatest advice I ever got was to never doubt in the dark what God shows you in the light. Never doubt in the valley what God shows you on the mountain. Be true to that truth that you have. You've seen it work before. It'll work again. It'll work again. Don't give up. Obedience. Confidence. The last word's promise. Cast not away therefore your confidence which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God you might receive the promise. For yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The reward is receiving the promise. And the promise is the presence of Jesus Christ. You see he already brought up to them how they had joyfully endured the loss of their possessions. Because they had a better and an enduring possession in heaven. Is your treasure Laid up in heaven. Laid up where a recession can't get it. Laid up where inflation can't get it. Thank God laid up where the IRS can't tax it. Is your treasure laid up in heaven? Then when we lose the things that we have here on earth, we know that there's an enduring treasure that's waiting on us. He's already brought up to them, you see, that time when Jesus would return, his reward would be with him. But now he tells us that the promise is Jesus himself. Initially, you see, the promise in the New Testament referred to the coming of the Holy Spirit when he'd take up residence inside of us, and he has done that. But it is also now we see the promise that Jesus is coming soon, and his reward is with him. Nothing inspires our faith any more than remembering that Jesus is coming again. Nothing bleeds the very lifeblood out of our faith any quicker than forgetting that we serve a coming king. And that our King Jesus, our living Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to every question and every problem we'll ever face. Ultimately. Why do you say it that way? (laughs) Because one of these days, folk, we are going to meet the Lord in the air. We'll either be alive when He comes... Oh, we'll be dead and resurrected, in which case we'll get to go first and watch the other ones come on and say, Where you been? About time you got here. What took you all so long? <laughs> no, we're not going to say that. I'm making that up. <laughs> it is fun to think about. The, the ultimate answer to all of our situations is the presence of Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate answer to all our questions, all our issues. The presence of Jesus sometimes is the only answer. When we go to the throne of grace and we need mercy, sometimes that promise of Jesus Christ is the only answer we're going to get. But God knows that that's the answer that we need. Remember, God didn't fix the Hebrew Christian situation. 
their persecution would continue for as long as they lived. But they still received the promise. Yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The Old Testament psalmist spoke of this in Psalm 130 and verse 5. And I'll give you this and then we'll be almost done. I wait for the Lord. He said, my soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes. More than those who watch for the morning. You know, there's absolutely nothing we can do to hurry the morning. Sunrise happens at its appointed time. You say, hey, we got daylight savings. Doesn't affect the sunrise at all. Spring forward two hours next year if you want to. Hey, you'll be early everywhere you get, but it still don't affect the, sun, the sunrise. The sunrise. We can't hasten it. I can't explain why roosters can see it before we can. I can't explain that to you. There was one fable I read one time suggested that the rooster crows because it doesn't think the sun can rise without him. But it can. Well, there's nothing we can do to rush a, a, a sunrise. And remember, the psalmist says, My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. There's something like waiting for the Lord that's like watching the morning. What is it? If you're waiting for a sunrise, you'll never be disappointed. The sun will rise. Someday you may be in that land of eternal day. And you'll not see the sunrise anymore. But until then, you wait for the sunrise. The sun always rises. And if you wait for the Lord, listen, the Lord always comes. You'll never be disappointed. Your faith endures while you wait for the Lord. The Lord comes. He may not do what you want, but He always comes. And because we know Him and because we love Him and because we know that He doesn't make mistakes, then we know that if God doesn't do what I want Him to do, it's because He's got something better to do. The promise helps our faith to endure our Lord's coming. Some of you today may then be in that first stage of faith where you believe in God. You kind of believe in the Bible. You maybe know a little bit about Jesus Christ. You're like Agrippa. You believe, but you aren't saved. Maybe today then is your day to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because you've heard the gospel. You know that Jesus died for your sin. He was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that feeling, your feeling right now in your heart is not the power of human persuasion. It is the power, the conviction of the Holy Spirit doing what only he can do. And that is blessing the gospel to give it power so that it is the power of God into salvation. What do you need to do? Say yes. Say yes. Lord, I believe. Call upon the name of the Lord. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. He will. You'll be saved. If you do that, then you need to follow the Lord in baptism. Uh, you need to go ahead then with these steps that we've talked about this morning. Where we come to God and we keep doing it. 
We come to Him for mercy. But as we are coming to Him with that confidence, knowing that He saved me at some point in the past or that He saved me today, then we continue to come. We come in obedience. Because at that moment that we disobey God, that is the moment that uh, the endurance of our faith goes the wrong direction. And the promise. Maybe like these Jewish believers, there was a time when you had endurance of your faith. Maybe that's gone. Maybe you're on the verge of giving up on God. And maybe even though you're here this morning in your heart of hearts that you know and God knows, you know you've given up on God, given up on church, given up on living for God. You grew weary. The persecution and ostracizing was relentless. Maybe you've joined the party crowd. Maybe you feel like all you've got left is that dry bones kind of faith. I'm here to tell you today. There's an army inside of you. God can breathe life back into you if you'll let him. Where do I start? Let's remember. Remember how it was. Be obedient. Claim the promise. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You need a faith today that endures. But if somewhere along the line you were struggling like these Hebrews did, then I'm here today with a message for you. You students, as you're heading back to school this week, maybe you're already feeling that intimidation. You don't know what it's going to be like for me at school. Yeah, I do. I really do. I wish I could help you. I wish I could come over there and join hands with you and just walk up and down the halls and have you introduce me to everybody you know. This is my pastor. I wish I could stay with you. I'd take geometry again, and I hated geometry. I wish I could, but I can't. Your mom and daddy wishes they could too. They can't. But I can tell you who will go with you, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's what your enduring faith brings you. And when we've got Jesus, he comes with the promise, your labor is not in vain. It don't count for nothing in the Lord. Where are you at today? Some of you need to make a decision. Some of you need to receive Christ. Some need to follow him in baptism. Some need a church home. I don't know what's going on. But I know the one who can breathe life into dry bones. Let's stand together, please.